Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Pocket Dojo podcast. I'm Paul Crick. And I'm Asha Singh. We hope you enjoyed the short recap we shared with you last time of the first few episodes of the podcast. Today, we're going to be delving more into why leadership is a practice, not just a set of skills and tools to use when challenges arise. We'll also be talking about the value of uh, frameworks as opposed to models. And we're going to be sharing a couple of those with you uh, through the episode. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to be looking in more detail at the last two elements of the GRACE framework. So that's great and important. Okay, then let's get started. So leadership, what does it mean to lead ourselves and others is a long discussed topic in and around all kinds of organizations. In 2019, Forbes magazine estimated that some $366 billion were being spent annually on leadership development of some kind around the world, whether that was formal learning or uh, mentorship or self-study or whatever. And yet we still have all the challenges and indeed opportunities we see around us. We've often thought about leadership as a series of qualities, skills, and tools that we need to develop and apply in right situations to get the results we want. The complexity and pace of change in recent years make it all too clear that we need to learn and adapt to changes as they're happening, instead of seeing things we don't want as problems to be solved, or that they'll go away once we've solved them and life can return to being stable enough. Many of the assumptions we've long held about life and what we need to do in order to flourish are now out of date. Would be wise then to update our maps of reality so that we're able to better navigate what we find around us in the outer world. That means we need to make good sense of it individually and together through our responses in our inner world, what we might call our inner nature, so that we can make good decisions about what to do in response and then enact them. In other words, what we do together, what we change, how we organize, and how we get things done. To know our inner nature means better understanding why we think and feel as we do, that much of our behavior is learned as we move through life, and that perhaps the current situation we find ourselves in is asking us to actually behave in new, even unfamiliar ways. We're not born knowing how to take care of ourselves and flourish in the world. We have to learn what that means and then practice it. From being able to dress ourselves, to driving a car, to being in a happy relationship, we're constantly learning and adapting. That continues when we're leaders with positions of formal responsibility, where we often need to grow into those roles and then adapt as they evolve. Or in teams who want to work fruitfully and successfully together, and may find it hard. We can learn to not just react to situations, but to creatively explore what is possible in them and where best to put our energy and resources. In other words, we practice emotional, relational, and spiritual intelligence. They're no longer just words in the models we learn on a leadership program. For the things we have to learn before we can do them, we learn by doing them, said Hannah Arendt the American historian and philosopher who had a notable influence on politics in her time. Anyone who's ever had to create something new and innovate knows firsthand that this is true. Or anyone who's learned to ride a bicycle, drive a car, ski, play tennis, bring up children. In other words, perhaps all of us in different ways and situations. 
And as much as we might like maps or sat-navs or models to show us where to go and what to do, we're all experiencing more and more directly that the map is not the territory or that the model doesn't work in real life. At best, it might show us the direction of travel. Often, it's just the wrong map or the wrong tool. Ray Thoughts on Maps, a poem by Miroslav Holub. The young lieutenant of a small Hungarian detachment in the Alps sent a reconnaissance unit out into the icy wasteland. It began to snow immediately. Snow for two days and the unit did not return. The lieutenant suffered. He dispatched his own people to death. But the third day, the unit came back. Where had they been? How had they made their way? Yes, they said. We considered ourselves lost and waited for the end. And then one of us found a map in his pocket. That calmed us down. We pitched camp, lasted out the snowstorm, and then with a the map, we discovered our bearings. And here we are. The lieutenant borrowed this remarkable map and had a good look at it. It was not a map of the Alps, but of the Pyrenees. When we think about the arts or sport, the notion of practicing to become better at something makes complete sense, doesn't it? As someone who plays keyboards and the guitar, then I know that if I'm going to become technically proficient and better at my instruments, I know I need to practice. Yet, when we think about the world of business, then it's probably reasonable to say that most skills don't receive the attention needed beyond what might be called on-the-job training. And even these skills tend to be technical skills rather than the skills we need to work together with others well. This notion of practice, you see, is about a dedicated, patient and mindful approach, not just to learning, but to personal growth. It's a journey, not a sprint, marked by peaks, plateaus and the occasional dip. Understanding this winding path is crucial to setting realistic expectations and for fueling our perseverance through the inevitable challenges we will face. And what of regular practice? Even in shorter durations, it's the bedrock of sustainable growth, the bedrock of mastery. It isn't mere repetition. It's mindful, deliberate engagement with our craft and with our work. True success then springs from this engagement from a continuous cycle of learning and improvement. It's about resilience, adaptability, and finding deep satisfaction in the process itself. Practice, you see, is not just a means to an end. The discipline, the routine of daily practice can lead to profound insights, not just into the skill or art form we're learning, but more importantly, into ourselves. And as we often say, becoming a leader is the same as becoming yourself. It's that simple, and yet it's also that difficult. So practicing what matters, the processes and patterns, is what helps us to progress on this path. The path to becoming ourselves, to mastering the art of leadership. It's where we sharpen our skills, where personal growth and the practice of leadership unfolds. Frameworks are really useful as well, rather than models. So models are intended to give some kind of representation of reality 
and some kind of certainty if you follow them properly. We might call them a tool. So if you want to hang a picture, you take a hammer and a nail, you bang the nail in the wall, preferably without banging a hammer, and the task is done. It can be a real waste of investment, though, in a fast-changing world to buy in tools that have been tried and tested everywhere or anywhere uh, with business cases and testimonials, only to find that your reality doesn't match the tool. The tool is redundant. People also aren't something to be fixed. We don't need tools to make them do things better ways. Uh, we end up that way actually just creating far more complexity than we ever needed to. And that's something we're going to look at in future episodes. A framework, on the other hand, helps us to make sense of the urinity that we're experiencing and to test it against some kind of theory. Again, you know, our lived experience might not fit the framework, but it's definitely a better way to try and understand what we're experiencing than take a tool and apply it to the situation. Paul, well, what are some of the frameworks that you use with your clients? Well, there's a number. Um, and I'm going to talk about the GRACE framework uh, a little a little later uh, in this particular episode. But the GRACE framework came about because as I got experience of teaching emotional intelligence to executives and consultants, I was struck that we were teaching a lot of the what. It was all very cerebral. It was, you know, lots of flip charts and presentations and watching videos. And yeah, there was the odd role play here and there, but it really didn't it really didn't nail it for me. So I, I was mm. concerned that we would sort of say, right, any questions at the end of an emotional intelligence session? And there'd be silence in the room. And then we go, right, then let's go off to lunch because we all know what emotional intelligence is. And yet when you go back to the office, you know, that particular lesson is something that needs to be practiced uh, over and over again, moment to moment, needs time to reflect on how things are going well and how they're not. So that's one particular framework. Um, I use is to fill the gap between the what of emotional intelligence, of which there is a plethora of material available, to being able to answer the question, so how do you do it? I, I often work with senior teams that have quite complex things to work through. Um, so the first thing that they really need to do is sense make and look at how they're uh, contributing to the reality that they are experiencing. So uh, depending on context needs, you know, preference for certain approaches, etc. I might use uh, things from complexity uh, science, complexity theory, things like uh, Esterin, Esterin mapping uh, and the Kenevin framework. Or I might go down the narrative, uh, look more at narratives, explore the stories that we tell ourselves, where those are coming from, et cetera, uh, particularly at scale, um, and use various forms of dialogue practice to, to do that. Um, process is also really important. So I think it's really useful to have a learning process, which is something that I have put together for, for my clients, um, that help us, as I say, to understand, you know, how we're creating or contributing at least to the reality that we experience. It's not something that happens to us. Um, and then, you know, how we might want to learn and adapt uh, uh, to the challenges that we see as a result. Um, and I'll talk about that again in, in another episode. Our desire to create is one of our deepest human needs and is on a psychological par with the physical needs of food and shelter. It's a fundamental to our human experience and something that we all have a longing for and all capable of. 
Creativity is identified by the World Economic Forum as one of the three most critical skills required for organizations to thrive in 2020 and beyond. A recent Gallup study of more than 16,500 employees shows that three foundational factors are needed to foster creativity in the workplace and that they're all too rare. The first is expectations for people to be creative at work. The second is to be given time to be creative and also to have the freedom to take the risk necessary to be creative. An Adobe study on the case for creativity in the workplace revealed that 32% of employees actually don't feel comfortable with creatively thinking in their career at all. There are many more reports and studies that echo all of these themes. As a result, businesses are clearly missing value that they should be capturing. Closing the gap between the freedom of workers to create and the crying need for their creativity is more than an economic and technological imperative. It's also about honoring the nature of humanity itself. From my own experience, creativity in the workplace was one of those things that people often spoke about, but didn't necessarily support all the way to the end through action. For example, one organization I was a part of spoke to the idea of treasuring wild ducks, which was great. That was until the wild ducks actually took flight and actually started being creative. Then the constraints of hierarchy, conservatism, and the chase to achieve the quarterly numbers often curbed enthusiasm and curtailed any creative endeavors. Being creative is risky because we expose personal viewpoints and tastes and invite judgment and rejection from others around us. We also invite failure, which is never comfortable. A rejection may jeopardize and harm any collective psychological safety that has already been accumulated in the workplace. And rejection on a personal level is something that causes us emotional pain. It's also somewhat intimidating because real creativity usually starts either with a blank canvas, a blank page, or a blank screen, both literally and metaphorically. We're in this place of primal unknowing, and it's not something that we're naturally comfortable with. We feel a need to respond. Without practice, we can feel insecure because in this place of not knowing, what comes next, what happens next, what's expected, or what we need to do next is unclear. Think about sitting at a potter's wheel as a novice and being asked to make a soup bowl, or making your first keynote presentation to a conference room of a thousand C-level execs. We feel the weight of responsibility to perform in some way, to make a mark and complete the task successfully. Creating requires us to surrender to intuition and to have the courage to make mistakes and to silence the voice of our inner critics and saboteurs. When we invite intuition into the creative process, it often enables the best in ideas to emerge from an internal sense rather than any rational analysis. Ask any creative artist where their best work came from and they'll often say, well, I don't know 
or they'll talk about the idea coming through them or to them, or they channeled it in some way. When we're willing to dance to the common obstacles to creativity, such as fear, self-doubt, and creative blocks, we discover that the only opposing force to our creativity is actually ourselves. The C in the GRACE framework addresses how to create work and how to deal with these feelings of discomfort with equanimity, integrity, and clarity. Specifically, it helps to transform the feelings of discomfort, of feeling insecure, to actually getting comfortable with being unsecure. Where unsecure means we just don't know what is going to happen next. We check in with ourselves or a coach and ask what feels out of balance. What is it I'm choosing not to accept? What energy am I projecting outside of me in trying to know and control this situation when actually I have all the resources I need inside me? What are the underlying assumptions that are underpinning my reactive tendencies and the need to try and control the situation? What's my attention and what's my resolve here? Am I grounded and present? And if not, what's off center? Am I contracting or am I expanding my presence? What's happening in my body and what can I do to change that? Go for a walk, have a stretch, drink a glass of water, phone a friend. All of these questions touch one or more points of the circle in the GRACE framework. It's not a linear framework, so there's no prescriptive set order or process that you actually need to follow. You simply have to be curious and see where in the framework you're drawn to in any moment to ask yourself or a coach to help you connect to your own resourcefulness and your wisdom. As you begin to practice using the GRACE framework, you may start to notice how you begin to develop a commitment to the creative process itself, rather than being overly focused on the outcome. You know, there's so much more to this, and I encourage you to have a play with some of the ideas I've talked about. But for now, I'll pause. We'll be covering the GRACE framework again throughout the podcast to help you tap into your own natural sense of play and creativity. In the world of our workplaces, filled with the constant buzz of business as usual, there lies an important concept deeply rooted in our essence, yet it's rarely discussed. And this concept is embodiment. It transcends mere mindfulness, representing a profound integration of our physical sensation emotions and thoughts guiding our actions as we seamlessly move through our daily lives. Embodiment means becoming fully in tune with the signals our bodies send us, allowing knowledge and experience to merge until they become as instinctive as breathing. Whether learning a new sport or mastering an art, true embodiment is not achieved just through understanding but through repeated immersive practice until our actions become an innate part of us. The martial arts principle of Mushin, or no mind, exemplifies this, describing a state of total immersion and harmony in the moment, 
It's similar to the flow state identified by Professor Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. This state represents peak immersion, where time and self-consciousness evaporate, leaving only a pure focus on the activity we're involved in. This leads us to ponder the intricate dance between mind and body, a relationship where each influences and responds to the other in a continuous feedback loop. For instance, Lawrence Schuster at the Lego Group practices awakening every cell in his body before important events transforming his presence and his purpose. Adopting an embodied approach transforms not just our posture, but our entire way of being, promoting a stance of openness and engagement. This matters profoundly because our embodied presence speaks volumes, influencing our actions and our interactions, and ultimately defining our essence. Yet many professionals are not fully attuned to the wisdom of their bodies and miss out on the power of a truly embodied presence. By embracing embodiment, we access a deeper clarity connection and confidence emanating from the core of our being. This conscious choice to embody our best selves in every interaction enriches not only our own lives, but also those around us, fostering an environment in the workplace where embodiment is not only recognized, but it's also celebrated. There's a lot to riff off here, Asha, in our next conversation. Yeah, also Excellent. to talk about with guests um, and maybe answer a few questions from a live audience in our first live broadcast. We'll let you know soon who will be visiting us on the show and when you can join us for that first live broadcast. So today we've gone deeper into why leadership is a practice, not just a set of skills and tools to use in different situations. We've looked at the last two elements of Paul's fantastic race framework. As always, we'll be writing more about these topics on Substack. You can find my posts at The Pocket Dojo and you can read Asha's writings at Learning Through Doing. So please join us again in two weeks time for episode seven. Uh, when we will be starting to think about collective development. In other words, how can teams learn and grow together, uh, practice together, uh, and why it's so important now. As always, you can watch the Pocket Dojo podcast on your favorite podcast channels. Uh, follow us on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. See you soon. Bye for now.